everybody. Welcome to Skype a Scientist Live. Today we are talking all about brains again because it's Neuroscience Week. We've partnered up with the Philadelphia chapter for the Society for Neuroscience. Um, and it, for anyone who doesn't know, Skype a Scientist is also based in Philadelphia. Uh, so we're making local connections here, even if we can't actually meet people in real life uh, because of the pandemic. So making the best of a pandemic situation. So um, I'm so glad that you're all here today. I hope you all brought your curiosity with you. Um, if you are new to Skype a Scientist Live, if you want to ask questions, this is the place to do it. You just have to ask them via the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Feel free to type in as many questions as you have. We'll get to as many as we can in the 45 minutes that uh, we have for this session. Um, at this point, I think it's time to introduce our guest. We've got uh, Dr. Vishnu Murthy. He uh, is at Temple University, um, and I'm gonna hand it over to him right now to go over uh, who he is, what he does, and why he likes it. Oh, hi everybody. Um, I'm really excited to be doing this because I love talking about the brain, and I love talking about neuroscience, and I also love fielding really weird questions about the brain and neuroscience because it makes me think about things in ways that I normally don't do it. So um, I'm Vishnu Deepamurti. I'm a professor here at Temple um, in the psychology department. And I run a lab here called the Adaptive Memory Lab. And the thing that we really care about in the lab and the thing that I, I love the most about um, neuroscience is specifically studying memory. Right, and basically how we form memories of the world around us and how we're able to retrieve those memories and how those memories change over time. So specifically, you know, there's a lot of different ways to study memories, but I like studying memories for the things that we find really important, right? So why is it that we can remember that like awful trip to the dentist, right? Which was horrible and we, we didn't want to go there and then we remember it every time we think about going back to the dentist, but we have like really zero memories for, you know, that visit to our cousin's house that we weren't really that excited about, right? So our brain has constructed sort of mechanisms to help us remember the things that are really important in the world and sort of let go of all the things that are really, really boring. Right. So, so that's the thing that I'm most interested in. And, and what I love the most about this stuff is that not only do we, we remember the things that are fun, remember the things that are really negative or bad, but our brain is really good at even like focusing in specifically on the most positive thing or negative thing that happened. And then we forget everything else around it. Right. So I, I was thinking, I was like, Oh, what's a good, good example of this. And I was, Thinking back in, um, in, in college, we used to go on hikes a lot in the woods. And I specifically remember a hike where we ran into a snake. Um, and I'm petrified of snakes, like terrified of them, right? And if I like close my eyes and think back of it, I can have this really vivid memory for exactly what that snake looked like and like where I almost stepped onto it in the path, right? And I was like, oh, you know, maybe my memories are wrong about this. I was like, I'm. I'm gonna call one of my friends that were on the hike and, and actually see if this this is what happened. And I actually don't remember a single person I was on that hike with, right? So even though I have like the most strong memory of seeing that snake, I don't remember anything else from that hike except seeing that snake. So this is this is like the weird, cool thing about our memories is that they're not not maps of what exactly happened in the world in the past but rather our brain's really good at saying, you know, I'm actually gonna pick up the thing 
that's the most important. And then I'm going to drop everything else so that way you don't have all these memories of every single thing that happened to you um, in the world. And so that's what our, our lab mainly studies. And, and one other thing that I, I thought I'd mention before we jump into questions and answers, um, because I'm also really excited about this stuff too, is, you know, sleep does really wacky things to your memory. Um, and especially for these types of emotional, emotional memories. So um, the other thing our lab studies is how these things change over time. And when we get a good night's sleep, you know, how is that changing? What information we remember and what information that, that we forget. So just a couple cool, like a few examples of really cool things that our memory does um, when we're sleeping is that one thing is that, you know, I said I might remember that scary snake, but I don't remember the people that I was with. That is something that happens after a night of sleep, right? So the, the longer the time passes and when you sleep, your, your, your brain will separate out like, oh, let's really keep these important things in our memories, but then let's get rid of all the, all the boring stuff. But not only does that, is that it also can change the type of memories too. So we might have two separate memories, and then once we go to sleep, we'll actually combine them. While we're sleeping, our brain will combine them into one, one memory, right? So I just moved into a brand new apartment complex uh, this past couple weeks, and I was walking out the apartment and I saw my neighbor with a cute puppy. Uh, he was a Labrador puppy that was, you know, I think like three months old, um, and I was like, oh, "Okay, this must be my downstairs neighbor and and this and this puppy." And then the next day, I saw that neighbor walking with um, another woman, um, and I was like, "Oh, maybe they're friends or something, you know, or you know, they, I bet they know each other." And then it wasn't until a night of sleep that I was like, oh my gosh, that must be the puppy's mom, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I figured out, I was like, oh, they all live together and she knows the puppy too. But that day of, I didn't really think about like, oh, she knows the puppy. But then after a night's sleep, I was able to combine those to remember that she was a, a um, um, the owner of the puppy. So I use that example because I love puppies and they're exciting <laughs> to me. But then also after a night's sleep, you sort of get a better memory of, of everything else. And, you know, I've been giving examples of how this is all like good things that happen. Like we should remember when we find that snake so we don't run into it again or who owns the cute puppy downstairs so you can go visit. Um, but what our lab also studies a little bit too is, you know, sometimes these things can be too much and they go wrong. Right. So sometimes these things that are really good um, at first, you know, if you sort of turn up the volume of them and have too many positive memories or too many negative memories, you actually are at risk for different mental illnesses and psychiatric disorders. So our lab also studies that to try to figure out ways we can help people that have these disorders that are related to to memories. Okay, was that too much or too little? Or that was beautiful. Right. That was great. I. I have so many questions already and our audience does too. So this is awesome. Cool. Um, okay. So that sounds so cool. And uh, like, I just feel like so much work that sometimes we talk about on here, like what the scientist actually does is so like separated from what people think about and like talk about over coffee, you know, like non-scientists that um, it's like so different and small, but this is stuff that like, 
you talk to your friend about. You're like, right. I had the weirdest dream. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's super cool. Okay, so let's get into the questions. Um, our first question, how do you condition your brain to expand what you focus on in order to better retain memories? Cool. So um, there's a lot of things we can do, right, um, to basically train our brain in, in different ways. So one way to do it is, you know, actually just like the more you exercise your brain in the way to do these things, um, you know, the, the, the evidence looks like that can also help us in, in real life expanding our brain. And that's just for sort of everyday memory. There's also been some really cool stuff, like things like meditation practices, things that sort of keep us really calm and cool and level. And if we can just sort of manage our stress and manage our state of emotions, you also end up with these like broader memories of, of, of everything else in the world, right? So if emotions job is to sort of make us narrow in on really specific things, one way you can sort of train your brain to not get so narrow and focused when you have these memories is to actually work on these things that actually help us regulate our emotions or sort of chill out or relax in the space and you sort of end up with broader emotions i mean broader memories from there that's so cool i never would have predicted that that's so that's so super super cool all right dexter age eight and milo age nine want to know have you seen the disney pixar movie inside out and if so how accurate uh does it deal with memory and emotion um it's so good it's okay okay great. dexter and milo you guys have awesome taste in movies um and inside out is one of my favorite pixar movies a because it's like really fun but also it's exactly what we study right so you know it's surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly because pixar is awesome it's really good so when they were making inside out the writers of the movie actually consulted with a bunch of memory and emotion psychologists and neuroscientists to make sure that everything in the movie was sort of as close to accurate as you could be while also making um, uh, um, a good movie, right? Right. And I'll pick out one part that I thought was so cool in the movie that they, they nailed down. So I apologize for people that didn't see the movie. This won't have any spoiler alerts. Um, but there's a part where she, she holds all of her memories as little marbles. Right, and when the memories were disappearing, what would happen is once she would touch one of them, it would sort of light up a little bit and then disappear, and that was her forgetting the memories. And we know that this might actually be a process that human, humans use um, and have in their brain. That say, So say we have a memory that's like, oh, it's a little bit of a shaky memory, right? If we retrieve it and we try to think about it a lot, that memory will survive the long term, right? But if we just sort of think about it a little bit, but not all the way deeply think about it, we'll actually forget, we're more likely to forget those memories versus ones we never touched before, right? And the movie got this perfect. They had them sort of slightly touching memories and then they would disappear. And I was like, this is research that's come out in the past five years. Like, like they really nailed it. So, uh, you know, three thumbs up for Pixar. That's so cool. So what, let's say like your, uh, over age 25 and you have memories that go back 15 years or so and you think that like like someone says hey you remember that time that we blah blah blah, blah. and you're like no and then they show you a picture or some other thing from that time and then all of a sudden things that you didn't know that you remembered come like flooding back like what is the deal with 
that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. So there's there's sort of like two what's the deal. <laughs> there's two ways to answer what's the deal with it. Okay. The first one is that I always, I like to think of memories a little bit like, um, please help me with what the word is it for those, but like, you know when you're in an arcade and it's these like... Oh, or, the claw, claw machine. Like the claw machine, right? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, sometimes yeah. like to think of memories like the claw machine, where like, you know, imagine all the stuffed animals, each one of them is a different toy in our brain, right? Uh -huh. So all these memories are there. So one question is like, okay, is the toy there or not? Right, that's like one way to forget information. The other way to, to forget it is that you, you're, if, you're, if your brain is the claw that's trying to grab that memory, if it can't find the right hook to get that memory, uh -huh. then there's no way that it can retrieve it, right? So when you think about that with your friend was like, oh no, remember this picture? Like, and then you're like, oh yes, all of it comes back. I think that's sort of like, okay, I just needed that one hook to open up that memory. Uh -huh. And now that I have that hook, I can pull it out and expand it over and over again, right? Yeah. And like, you know, what happens is our memories are these like, like these little nodes that are attached to each other and all the nodes are connected with each other and expand outwards. Right, so you just sort of have to sometimes get into one node, and then once you pull that one node, sort of the whole thing will light up, and that's why you have a better memory. But the big caveat, and they've done some really cool studies about this, is that when we think of those memories of the past, and we're like, oh yeah, now I remember it, they can often be completely false memories that you've never had before. And you'll believe really strongly that you've seen it before. Because our brain is really good at making sense out of things that don't make sense. So I'll give a quick example of this. They did these studies where they, where they photoshopped people out of other pictures and then placed them on a hot air balloon. So they'd take a picture when you're like, you know, five or 10 years ago, cut you out of the picture, put it in a hot air balloon, held it up and people were like, remember this time you went on the hot air balloon? And then all of a sudden they would start sharing pretty rich details about their trip to the hot air balloon, even though it never happened, right? But our brain wants to fill in the blanks. So if you're showing it like, this is you on that hot air balloon, you're sort of just gonna like scramble and be like, okay, well, I have memories that are close to this. This must be right. Let me just reconstruct it into into an event with the with information that I already know, and you'll actually believe like it's real, right? So this is the like, this is the tricky thing about memory, is that in some ways it's like, it's too good, right? <laughs> like it, it's too good. And you can make up true ones or you can make up false ones. That's spooky. Yeah, super spooky. So spooky. All right. Um, all right, we got a question from Beck. Do you think there are ways that memory neuroscience can be used to help students learn in school settings? I think that it is really hard, but it's a really good idea. Um, and it, and it's, it's, it's sometimes hard because people speak different languages, right? So when I'm thinking about the brain, I'm not really, you know, I don't know anything about teaching in a classroom setting. I'm not a, I'm not a fourth grade teacher to know what's happening in there. And then you have individuals that are, you know, fourth grade teachers that like, they didn't spend eight years studying the brain to know how it's working. And I think, you know, Philadelphia and things like Skype a Scientist are actually really good because we just need platforms to help people sort of, you know, connect across each other. And our lab is trying to do this in a, in a couple ways because, you know, we study how like 
liking something or being interested in something helps you learn it better, right? But we're not in the classroom doing this. We're just sort of studying the brain systems that make it that like when you're curious about something, you'll learn it better. But then what we can do is be like, okay, what are all the different behavioral states in the world that activate that brain system, right? So maybe reward does it, but it's, it's pretty silly to think we're gonna pay students a dollar for every time they get, get a question, right, right? But that same circuit that's activated by rewards is also activated when people are curious about something or you give them the ability to make decisions about what they want to learn versus what they don't want to learn. So now we can sort of use the neuroscience to be like, okay, here's 10 other things we know that enhance memory. And we can talk to people in education say like, are any of these realistic? Like, is this something that we can implement? And I think like, you know, the time is right now that we're actually starting, starting to do this. That's awesome. Yeah, man, communicating like amongst different silos is so, so important. And it's so hard. It's really hard, especially when like I'll talk to teachers and they um, will often assume that I know teaching words that I definitely do not know. Right. I think like th there's this assumption that like if you're a scientist, you know a lot about a lot of things. I'm like, I really just know about like squid and yeah. communication. <laughs> like I don't really know. Right. Like, I know what an IEP is, but <laughs> any other acronym you throw at me, I'm gonna be like, Ugh. I'm yeah. like Googling to figure out what's what. It's really hard. Um, so yeah, that is, uh, that is a challenge. Um, the next question is, uh, what are ways to en enhance your time asleep to better help memory consolidation? Oh, okay. So, I, I'm, I'm not, the master, I'm not a sleep master, but I, I, you know, I don't know this with my scientist hat on, but I know this from my like, sometimes I'm a really bad sleeper at night, so I've done all the research just for personal things. So a couple things that, that really, really help um, is one is just like actually putting in the hours and getting more hours of sleep, right? Your brain cycles through these different stages. And sometimes the stages that are really good for helping your memories sort of happen later in the game than earlier in the game, right? So it's not those first 20 minutes in a nap that are really gonna grab us. It's the things that are happening sort of after half an hour to two hours. Those are the ones that really help our memory. So one thing is just sort of getting in bed earlier, giving yourself more time and opportunity to sleep, um, and then following your way through. And then there's all these things that we know make sleep a little restless. So these are things like don't drink any sugar or caffeine before you go to bed. You know, put away this iPad so you're not getting that blue light in your face. All these things that sort of help you sort of get longer, deeper sleep are going to be the types of things that then actually help your memory um, later too. So I think the answer is just more sleep and then the better your memory will be from it. Yeah, more sleep, better sleep. I don't know about you. The During the pandemic, I've had the worst sleep ever. I've been sleeping like a... 15 year old boy I've been sleeping like 15 hours so. yeah and then like two other nights it's awful um we're all messed up but that's fine uh a question from Nicholas how does PTSD or depression relate to memory um and this is like a multi-part question so here we go why do individuals get stuck on super negative memories and how does therapy help with these like really vivid memories cool okay so I think this is like one of the most important questions ever and, and, and is something that our lab is really interested in. I have to start with the disclaimer, like I have no clinical training at all. Like I am a basic scientist. We do research in these populations, but like 
I don't actually know anything about treatment. So think of this more of like an academic answer than an answer you would get from asking a therapist, a social worker, a physician, a nurse, right? Okay, so I think what can happen is in, in you know, I talked about this example with, you know, I can remember the snake that I saw and um, not the things that are around it, right? Um, so at least for like PTSD, you know, what I think is happening and a few other people in the think that is happening is that like a snake might be a minor high arousal event, a minor stressful event. If you turn up that knob on stress all the way up, then you're gonna get this memory that is so salient and pops out and is negative and aversive and it has all these feelings and emotions attached to it, right? Um, and that gets really prominently there. And then what can happen is like, A, not only, you know, there's things that aren't memory related involved with PTSD, like going through that stress and, and high arousal is gonna change brain networks in different ways too. But it, what it does do to memory is that you now have this really sharp memory. And we talked about those hooks, like the grappling hook to grab a memory. Basically, this is the easiest grappling hook to grab back, grab back onto, right? You can imagine the, like the loop to pick it up is much easier to grab than a lot of the other loops of how you pick up, pick up memories. And what happens then too is that often it becomes so narrow that you often will be more susceptible than to generalize that memory everywhere else, right? So imagine I, I was, um, you know, walking down the street in a you know, a little yippy dog, maybe nibbles on my toe, and the bites, you know, I get bit, but it's sort of like more annoying than anything else. I'm like, okay, that's that white dog that has diamonds all over her leash. Like, she's gonna bite my toes. I'm gonna stay away from her, right? But imagine now you're, you're walking to your neighbors, and you get into a really serious dog bite, right? Like, a very, like, threatening, heartful dog bite. And maybe now you're not really focusing on which house you were at or what the yard looked like, or even what the dog's face is because the thing that's really sticking out in your head is like those teeth and, and what those teeth look like. Now, instead of just being afraid of that one specific dog, because that memory is so narrow and so intense and so strong, you might end up being afraid of all dogs, right? And you get things like generalization and now, and this is how things like phobias and, and anxiety and trauma, they can be focused on memory because your memory is so fuzzy that it ends up spreading to, to other places. So I think that might be memory's role in, in those. And then what they think might be happening in depression is that, you know, in day-to-day -day life, we'll retrieve all types of memories, right? We'll retrieve the boring memories of what I did at the grocery store. Uh, we'll retrieve the memories of like, how much I love talking to my mom on the phone. Or we'll retrieve the memories of sometimes I don't love talking to my mom on the phone. Like, you have all these different types of memories um, that, that are there. And what might be happening in depression is that you're a little bit biased or maybe you're a lot biased to retrieving the negative emotions and the negative memories more than the positive ones, right? Um, and then through that, you end up with sort of replaying a lot of negative events in your head that can lead to depression. So some forms of therapy for both of these disorders is sort of in a structured environment with your therapist, you are trying to explore these memory processes in a broader way to say, okay, let's not just think about the dog and his teeth, but let's talk about where you're at and when it could happen again and what are the other features that surround it 
to sort of help combat against some of these, these things. Cool. Awesome. Thanks for answering that. Yeah. Um, all right. Rigel wants to know, um, have you done any studies with how memory functions in people with neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD or impaired memory is a key aspect of the condition? So I haven't studied um, ADHD at all. Um, but what I have studied a lot, just in terms of patient populations, is we do a lot of research in psychosis. Uh, and individuals who are at risk for psychosis. And I want to take, oh, I forget what, whose name, their name with the question that I asked. No. But um, I want to take that question and say, you know, slightly to just like change the idea that it's a disorder or dysfunction, but rather I think it's important just to think about how they're different, right? It's just not not the same as everyone else's because when when it's easy to just say like, oh, this disorder has worse blah, 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 right? But often when you look into it more deeply, they also have better something else, right? And the idea is that it's like a trade-off between two things that might be happening happening simultaneously to each other. So, you know, we, we recently ran a study in, in um, individuals within their first episode of psychosis. So these are individuals um, with symptoms of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And when you sort of read the literature in general, it's like, okay, their memory is worse compared to a normative population. But we did these sort of really careful tests where we could look at different aspects of memory, right? So basically we compared with like how much of your memory is involving like telling the story in the same order that you, you heard it. Right, but then we can also score like how good is your memory of relating it to other related facts, right? So if you ask me about my breakfast, I would say okay, I got up at eight a.m. and then I, you know, you know, took the bagel out of the fridge and then I toasted it and then well, so that I made the coffee. That's me going in order, right? right. But instead of you're like, oh, what do you have for breakfast? I was like, oh, you know, I had bagels. Yeah, you know, like. Most of the other times I have breakfast, I have bagels. Oh, but you know, bagels actually remind me of donuts too. And sometimes I have donuts. Like you're, you're jumping off of the things that are related, but there's still memories. You're just, you're, you're organizing it around things that are related. So yes, individuals that have symptoms related to schizophrenia or psychosis, they might be worse at telling those events in the exact same order that they, they heard them or it happened. But if you actually look at their memory of how they're good, how they are organizing things, around these concepts and semantics, they're actually better at that, right? So I think, you know, memory can play a process in all these things, but we should think about like what's different and maybe there's actually things that are better or getting prioritized rather than things that are, are just only deficits. That's a really great way of thinking of that. That's awesome. Um, so, okay, we've got our brain and we know that different parts of our brain do different things. Where does memory live? Okay, so there, you know, to, to think about this, um, you have to sort of think about memory maybe as three different parts. Okay. So say there's like three different parts of the lifetime of a memory. So the first part of the memory is that we're learning something new. And when we learn something new, it's really fragile. Mm -hmm. um, it's easily forgotten. It's just sort of just coming into your brain and it's really fresh. Then you have these periods of time after you learn it, which either could be during sleep or it could be during um, wakefulness, like, you know, you're, you're those. There's processes in the brain that actively stabilize some information and let go of other information. This is called consolidation. And then you have a third phase, which is retrieval, where you're really just trying to grab that memory and pull it up again. 
mm -hmm. right? So we know that there's a region in the medial temporal lobe. Um, so imagine this is a head with a brain in it. That shouldn't be that hard to imagine. If I turn sideways, sort of on both sides, there's these structures that run on the middle of the brain that sort of, you know, they look like a seahorse and they come around, right? Yeah. And these regions of the hippocampus are known to be really important for encoding new information, right? So if you have a lesion of your hippocampus or it was removed for epilepsies or, or surgical things, you often have a very hard time encoding, learning new information. But what's interesting though, is if you ask them about like, oh, you know, what, did, what was your high school prom like, right? They have really good memory for these old events that happened. So not just you know, so this started to give us a hint that you know it's not just the hippocampus where all these memories live, but what seems to be happening, and this is a controversial view, this is one that me and 60% of the scientists in the world agree with, <clears throat> maybe another 40% don't, is that what we think is happening is your hippocampus grabs that information when it comes in. Um, that's how you encode it, but then over time it starts to share that information literally with your entire brain, right? So say you have a memory and it had a lot of visual things to it. Like I'm on the hike and I see the beautiful picture of the lake in front of me. You know, then my hippocampus is gonna be like, okay, visual cortex, like remember that picture of the lake in your head? But then I'm also really smelling the fresh pine that's around me. It's gonna be like, okay, hippocampus, you know, it wasn't just vision that's happening. Like let me talk to olfactory cortex and store that memory of what it smelled like. And then you remember sort of the touch of your, your flannel on your shirt with the wind blowing on it. So then you're gonna be like, okay, sensory cortex, like remember that. And it's basically becoming the orchestrator of the symphony of the whole brain to say like memory, live in all these different places across the brain. And here's where the controversial part comes up is that some people think after a while, if like the, if the conductor who's the hippocampus keeps teaching them how to play together, at some point you might not even need the conductor anymore. Oh. So it becomes independent of the hippocampus and the brain has just remembered how to connect that memory together without, without the conductor. That is wild. I yeah. thought that it would all be right next to each other, not like pulling from all the- It is, it is spread out Whoa. pretty far. That's bananas. That's awesome. Um, okay, the next question is from Dexter and Milo again. Um, can you tell us about memory palaces and how people prepare to compete in memory competitions? Yeah, so I have read this a little bit and mostly it's, I just listened to it on a podcast. So again, I don't have, I don't have my memory expert hat on. Um, this is my podcast listener hat on. <laughs> um, the, these two are asking all the right questions of things that are the coolest, like Pixar and then memory competition. So one thing that I brought up, um, so memory palaces for people that don't know what they are, um, there's these individuals who can remember like infinity things, not infinity, but like hundreds of things really easy. Give them a deck of cards, shuffle them, have them read through them, then they can recite them all back and have memory for them. And one technique they've shown to use is this idea of called a memory palace. So what you do is you're like, okay, let me think of something I'm really familiar with. How about my walk from my house to my favorite coffee shop? I know that route like the back of my hand. I've done it multiple times. And what you do is when you're learning information, you place the information on different places on the walk. So you'd be like, okay, the first card says a three. I'm gonna place that three on the front door of my apartment. The next Next card's a 10, 
I'm gonna place that 10 on the stairwell down the apartment. So you actually place different items into this, this familiar environment, and that's why they call it a memory palace, like you're placing them into this palace to store memory. Then the idea is when you wanna retrieve it, you just now imagine walking back through the palace again, and you're able to pick up the different items from your, your, your environment. So what's really cool is that, you know, before we were humans having these really complicated memories that we could talk about with our friends and discuss our childhood memories and the implications of our memories on society. Before all of that, you know, our ancient ancestors were maybe using their memories in much simpler ways. You can think about the same way that maybe a rat is using their, their um, memories. And this might be a lot more for just spatial navigation, right? Like the rat needs its memory system a lot to remember like where food is, where it cached that food and how to get back to it. Or where did I leave my partner? How do I find them again when I need to find my partner? So some people think that these, these memory systems actually grew out of systems that were meant to do navigation, right? And what's new is in humans, they still do navigation. So some of the, the cool idea with memory palaces might be like, okay, we really want to tap into how awesome our memory systems in. Like, let's go really primal with it and say like, this was meant to do space. This was meant to do space and navigation. So let's like go with the flow and turn everything into a space and place type of thing. And then that way we can remember these things better. And I tried once to try the, me the memory palace method and like bombed at it. Um, but I think that was from lack of motivation, not that it could, that not anybody can do it. So I think it's worth a try. It's not that hard. Find a YouTube video on it, give it a go. And I think most people should actually end up being able to do it. That's super cool. Um, I know that I can always, like, I go to a place one time and I know how to get there. Really? Uh, it's like, I'm one of those connecting brain bits, but like other things I could never remember to save my life, like uh, people's names after I yeah. meet them the first time. So, yeah, that, I bet that maybe it's like it works for people who have things set up kind of like that. I don't know. Yeah, some people think that we have like natural preferences for space versus items, and that might dictate like, I'm just a space type of person. Right. Um, I think a little bit more it's like what you're exposed to when you're really young. So, you know, if you grew up with a GPS, then you might not be the best navigator in the world. If you yeah. grew up without a GPS, then maybe you're going to be a better navigator. Cool. Sounds good. Um, all right, next question. Um, all right, so can you touch on the different um, like mechanisms of neuroscience that you're looking at in your lab? Yeah, so we, um, you know, you brought up earlier like what's cool and fun about this is that like these are the types of conversations you can have around a coffee table. So my lab exclusively works with humans. Like we, we are trying to study these things that are like everyday phenomena and memory in my life. Um, but what we do is we try to use as much as we can about what we know from the basic animal studies to sort of inspire how we think about it. And one thing that's, you know, I don't know why I keep plugging Temple, but I love it here and I've only been here for three years. So I'm still like, ah, Temple's the best! Um, is that we have a bunch of animal researchers around too, and we can talk all the time to try to find the connection between them. But to study these processes in in, in adults and humans where we want to say these, we mainly try to think of really clever behavioral designs to test that. 
And then we can add in some of the neuroscience methods by we put people in the MRIs while they're learning or retrieving different types of information. So then we can get a sense of what parts of the brain are activated or how are different regions in the brain talking to each other during these different memory processes. Um, we can also do some work while we record people's brain waves while they're sleeping to sort of see like, okay, what stage of sleep are you in? Do we have evidence that you're replaying memories or, or not? This is something we were just about to get started before the pandemic hit. So we have all the equipment set up, but haven't run anybody on it yet. Um, but then also like, we don't personally do this, but a lot of the very similar research, they'll use drug manipulation. So give people a dopamine drug and see what that does or give people an antidepressant and see what that does in memory. Or we can actually study individuals with clinical populations where we know what differences there are in things like neurotransmitter systems or brain dysfunction, et cetera. Awesome. That sounds super, super cool. I know when I was in college, they would give you like uh, 10 bucks or 20 bucks or a hundred bucks to participate in various That's us. Uh, studies. That's us. Yeah. Us. Like, that sounds like what I did in college. Yeah. Uh, one time they had an EEG, no, EEG, not EKG, EEG on me. Um, it was 8 a.m. And they told me I was not allowed to fall asleep, but I had to lay down with my eyes closed which was just the hardest thing I think I've ever done in my life. And they would like tap a Sharpie to wait, get me to like oh. right before sleep. And I'd be like, huh. it was, it was, it was, it, yeah, was that's tough. it was tough. Okay. Anyway, but back to questions. Um, let's see. So here's an, here's a, a question that I was wondering too. Um, what is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's and what happens to the memories? What, like what, what happens and why do they go away? Yeah, I, so I, I, I have to, in my areas of expertise, Alzheimer's and dementia are, are pretty low, so I'd hate okay. to, like, speculate against that. One thing to know is that, like, Alzheimer's is a type of dementia, so that might be okay. helpful, too, so there's not really a difference between them. It's, it's a type of dementia, but, like, you know, I don't know if I just don't know this, or does nobody know this, right? Um, but, I, yeah, I, I would hate to guess and be wrong. That's awesome. You can always <laughs> so. say you don't know. Scientists, right. we don't know everything, even, right. even if things, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Okay, um, <clears throat> one last question. Does language development play a role in memory? So <clears throat> um, I'll quit saying how much I like Temple, but one of the cool things is I only studied memory in adults and in patient populations um, prior to Temple, you know, the past 20, 20 years of my Oh, that makes me feel really old. The past 20 years, that's what I was doing. But um, when I got to Temple, I met um, two researchers, Ingrid Olson and Nora Newcomb, and they were quite interested in, in the memory development between the ages of four to six, because some really wild things happen in these early stages of memory where the idea is that you have like pretty fuzzy-ish memories in, when you're four, but just two years later, you're able to form these really rich episodic details of the specifics and all the features of the world that are happening around it. And it's like, wait a minute, two years just passed. Like, how is this so wildly different, right? Um, and one idea is that you sort of, not language per se, but language in some ways is a way for us to express different types of like semantic or categorical knowledge, right? Like I might know, I'm making it very clear that I'm obsessed with dogs, right? Like at some point my brain knows that these like six things that look pretty different from each other 
are all dogs, right? Like I, I'm understanding that these six things are all dogs. Um, what comes along with that is the ability to point at him and say dog, right? Um, and there's a lot of really cool work that the ability to learn those semantic categories and, and have the words to use them might be the thing that is helping memories accelerate so fast, right? So before that I can, before it's, it's I'm able to be like, okay, here, oh, my, my, my mom went to the grocery store and at the grocery store, she picked up all the things that make a birthday cake. And then she came back to the house and it was so much fun eating the birthday cake, right? Like right. before I can have that really rich, complicated memory of it, I like sort of need to know what a birthday cake is. I sort of need to know what happens at a grocery store right. and how you go to a grocery store. Maybe I don't need to know those, but it's going to be a lot easier if I have a general sense of like what the ingredients are into a, into a, a cake for me to have a really rich memory of which specific ingredients you got, right? So in that way, I, I don't know if it's necessarily like language, like the words coming out of my mouth, because there's different ways to express our knowledge of these, these concepts around us. But I do think these, these concepts have a huge impact on, on how our memories are formed. That's super cool. I had no idea that that would be how that works. That's so, so cool. Me neither. I learned this last year. Really? That's a, I yeah. love <laughs> things related to your area of expertise. That's just like when you're, yeah. you've been in it for a while. That's so fun. Uh, we're always learning in science. Right. Um, okay. For real, for real, one last question, and then we're going to do our last two questions. Um, what is the physical manifestation of a memory? Like, is it neuro neuron cells or is it proteins? Like, what? Okay. Memory, I'm going to take this very simple question and wane the philosophy back. Uh, <laughs> no, the reason I love memory research, like out of all the things I could have picked in the world, right? The reason I love memory research so much is that you can study it at the levels of proteins on a neuron. You can study it at the level of a couple of neurons talking to each other. You can study it at the level of here's thousands of neurons in one brain region and how does that respond? Or you can study it at the level of like how's the whole brain operating in, in synchrony to form a memory. And what makes that question impossible to answer is like yes to all of them, right? Like what is the physical manifestation of a memory? Like, okay, is it adding more receptors to a, to a, to a, a neuron so that it fires more in concert with its with this neighbor like yes that is learning something that is like a form of something is that the memory of my grandma no right right like so then you have to scale up and it's like okay well maybe if you have a lot of those neurons doing this then you get a population of neurons that are responding in some way is that my like feeling of nostalgia when i think about my third year birthday party Probably not. <laughs> That's probably not it either. So in some ways, the answer is like, no, it's not a protein or it's not a set of neurons. Like, you know, I'm biased because I care about human memory. It's like, it's how all these things scaffold on top of each other. So maybe one way, just, you know, metaphors are useful sometimes. The question is, I was like, okay, like, you know, what is my home built of? What makes my home, basically, what's the physical manifestation of my home? Is it a nail in one piece of wood? Or is it the whole infrastructure of the drywalls? Or is it after I put the pictures up on my walls that remind me how much I love my family, 
in my newly designed bedroom with fresh paint? Like, the answer is yes to all of them and, like, no to all of them. Right, 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 right. Is it the party that I had at the housewarming where I had right. positive feelings and that made me feel like it was home? Like, Right. Yeah. Or it might just be the bolt in the door. Right. <laughs> like, right. Awesome. Well, this has been super cool. We try to keep these at 45 minutes. Uh, so we always ask some, everybody the same two questions at the end. The first question is, um, if you had the attention of everybody in the world and you could tell them one thing about your area of expertise, what would it be? Oh, that is a good one. But I think I would tell them that, you know, not our memories are not always exactly what happened to us. Um, and that's for better or for worse, right? And to remember that sometimes when thinking back in the past that, you know, we might be thinking everything's wonderful because we're remembering all those good memories. Or, you know, you fall into these traps sometimes where you think everything's horrible and you, you're only remembering all the sad things that have happened in the past eight months while you're locked in your bedroom and can't go outside because of the pandemic. You know, just remember that's not always the most accurate picture of everything you've gone through. So when you're moving forward in life, sometimes it's helpful to remember that our memories can sometimes trick and deceive us and, and, and can sometimes like, you know, help us to have a brighter outlook uh, of what's ahead of us. So I think I would, you know, sneak in a little mental health message there about with our memories. That, that's great advice. Um, and then the second question is, you still have everybody's attention in the whole world and you can tell them one thing about literally anything. It can be as big picture important or small and insignificant and silly as you'd like. Yeah, okay. I, um, I thought about this a lot because I was asked a similar question last year to make a little like, what's the one bit of advice you want to give to all the graduating seniors um, as they move on? And I think, you know, the crowd here is a little bit younger. So I'm going to like give some like, um, the old man by the river giving advice to, to the youngins, even though I'm only 37. Is that like, um, oh, just like really embrace a sense of curiosity and exploration and play while you can. Um, and maybe I'm also speaking to the parents out there that, that have their kids with them. I just think about like, you know, the world gets narrow and narrower, the older and older you get. And I, and I, I think that it, it, you have so much natural curiosity when you're younger and it's the most fun thing in the world to like face the world with a sense of exploration. Uh, and I don't know if like, you know, those are the right words to convey this to a six and eight year old. Um, so for them, I'd say like, have fun while you can and like be curious about things and find ways to explore those things when you're curious. And then I guess the parents are like, let them do that as much as you can while they can before they have to worry about SATs. Solid advice. Yeah. <laughs> have fun before you have to think about standardized testing. Right. Uh, Perfect. <laughs> wonderful. Okay. Well, do you have anything um, that you'd like to plug? Are there places we can find you on social media or online? So I'm on Twitter at VP Murdy. Um, and, you know, the one thing that's sort of like a bummer about doing these things over Skype versus in real life is that like, I don't have a sense of anybody's faces or who's out there in the world. But like, I love talking about memory with everybody. Um, and I would happily do it ad infinitum. So if you have other questions that I didn't get to, like feel free to, to find me on Twitter and send me a message and I'd be like happy to chat more because I think it's really, really important and fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I had a lot of fun and learned so much. Turns out I didn't know much about memory at all, but now I know 
45 minutes worth. So I'm feeling pretty good. Awesome. awesome. Thank you uh, for taking the time. And Erin, thank you for signing for us. Uh, always a pleasure to have you here. Um, and we'll see you all next week. Next week is Archaeology Week. Ooh. We have a lot of archaeologists coming on starting on Sunday. So Sunday at noon Eastern? Noon Eastern. We're talking about Roman toilets the black hole of the past. So uh, get excited to talk toilets on uh, Sunday at noon Eastern. All of the information for that and all of the subsequent sessions is on skypeascientist.com. Click the events tab. You'll see everything we have going on. It's a very full week next week, so get pumped. Um, and thank you again for coming. Thanks for all your questions and your curiosity. And um, we'll see you all next week. Bye.